it's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Do I Walk in the Spirit or the Lusts of My Human Nature? Part 5. Four episodes ago, we began our journey in Galatians 5 and the 15 nasty deeds of the flesh. Two episodes later, we began examining the nine powerful and transformative fruits of God's Spirit. Now, we wrap up the latest three of these fruits. What does God want us to become? This is the finale. Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5 are much more than a recounting of nice things to develop as Christians. They are fundamental building blocks upon which any productive Christian life must be built. Whenever we refer to any of these nine characteristics, let's remember that there are two ways we can view them. Take love, the first fruit of the Spirit, for example. Many people can exhibit selfless love in their lives, even if they're not Christians. However, the fruit of the Spirit love is based on God's own example through Jesus and therefore has a higher foundational meaning. The key to understanding all of these fruits is to see that they reflect God's ways and not the best of our ways. In part five of our series, we'll complete our discussion of these fruit and absorb their amazing impact. So long time coming, part one, two, three, four, part five, now we put it all together. Galatians 5, 16 through 25. We will start with verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Paul then lists the deeds of the flesh, and these deeds are in five general categories. We went over these. They are intimate human desire, the spiritual control in our lives, interpersonal relationships, group relationships, and reckless behavior. So after this list, Paul then covers anything he might have missed, and he says, And things like these, of which I forewarn you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we've got that summation of those uh, deeds of the flesh. With these powerfully negative and revealing deeds expressed, the apostle then immediately moves on to a list of powerfully positive and life-changing characteristics of true Christians. And that's found in Galatians 5, 22 to 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is applying the fruit of the Spirit. This fruit of the Spirit in these verses is the fruitage of God's power and influence 
working within us. In our last two episodes, we observed the first six characteristics of God's Spirit in us. And so we want to take a very quick look at those first six fruit of the Spirit because they set the groundwork for the last three. Jonathan, let's get started with the first one. The first fruit was love, the foundation for all that follows. Selfless love rises to the heights of giving that does not need or seek reciprocation. This is how God loves us, how Jesus loves us, and how Jesus taught us to love one another. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So as a fruit of the Spirit, selfless love, based on God's love for us, is a lofty goal. Striving to learn, feel, express, and live God's love opens the door for true spiritual growth. And remember, this is the foundational fruit out of which everything else is built. Julie, what's next? Well, our second fruit was joy. And joy means cheerfulness or calm delight. True and lasting joy is a fleeting experience in our world. The joy we're given as fruit of God's spirit implies, though, that it's always accessible and ever-inspiring. Let's take a look at John 15, 11, that says, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. So you've got love and then joy. Joy is a natural byproduct to God's Spirit, and we need to allow the joy of God's plan to live, breathe, and grow within us, even when our trials are raging. So joy is that internal thing that needs to grow up and become a part of our everyday lives. It's a very important, understated fruit. Jonathan, what's next? The third fruit was peace. Peace means peace, harmony, security, prosperity. Similar to joy, this kind of sustaining peace is fleeting in our world. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. As a fruit of the Spirit, peace is a quiet but amazingly powerful asset. We can only attain and maintain it if we let the love of God transform us and then live in the joy of that transformation. Back in part three, episode 1256, we brought out how the selfless love of God produces a sense of joy and add those two together and it equals peace, that selfless love plus joy. And this doesn't mean that if we get sad or feel anxious that we've stopped developing fruit because all of this fruitage is bigger than just one moment or one circumstance in our lives. We move on to the fourth fruit. The fourth fruit was patience. Patience, also to look, uh, it's read as long-suffering or forbearance. That's a willingness to be non-reactive and willing to wait for a situation to completely unfold. It's like being disciplined in holding back. We look at 2 Timothy 4.2 that says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So there's a lot to patience. As a fruit, patience is a developed discipline. It's watching and waiting with a spiritually-based perspective, responding with a godly response, and restraining our fleshly actions. And patience is an important basis for our communicating with others. Now, the fifth fruit was kindness. This kindness means integrity and moral excellence. It's not only about sympathy and helpfulness, but also about 
morality and integrity. Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 7. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So you look at kindness. As a fruit, kindness is clearly based upon the moral excellence that came from God and was exemplified in Jesus' daily human life. That's where you see the example. It's a discipline. It's a discipline that's developed through living in selfless love and applying the previous fruit of long-tempered forbearance. And it's so important to understand that with kindness, you need to have the patience and the peace, and you go back further, and the joy and the love. It all is connected, and that's one of the things that we're learning about this, this examination of the fruit of the Spirit is the connectedness as these are given to us as from God and from His Spirit. Julie, what's the last fruit that we have discussed so far? The sixth and last fruit we discussed was goodness, and goodness means virtue, which is conformity to a standard of right uh, and beneficence. Someone who is beneficent is generous and doing good. We looked at Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. As a fruit of the Spirit, goodness stands upon the development of the long temper of patience and the growing of the the moral excellence of kindness. This uprightness of heart and life is the outward expression of forbearance and integrity. So again, you look back over these first six fruit and you see a unit of characteristics that work together. And these characteristics come from God through his spirit to us. This is not me trying to develop my own goodness or my own kindness or my own patience. It's about us trying to develop that which is from God through his spirit. This is an important aspect of understanding the absolute power of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. What a tremendous list of godly attributes to build from. We're two-thirds through these amazing fruits. What have we learned, and what can we learn? In reviewing the fruit of the Spirit already covered, we can observe some significant patterns. Love is the foundation. Joy and peace are direct results of knowing the love of God as expressed through His plan for all of humanity. Then you move on to the next three. Patience, or forbearance, kindness, integrity, and goodness, or virtue, are all developed because of our applying selfless love. The final three fruit will bring yet another pattern. So as we begin to open up the last portion of this, it is no less important than the first or the middle. All of them work so closely together. So Julie, where do we go from here? Well, let's focus on the fruit. The next one is faithfulness. Faithfulness is a direct result of selfless love as a basis for all of life's endeavors. And this fruit of faith means persuasion, credence, conviction, reliance, and constancy. 
this is an interesting fruit because think about it. You have to have faith in order to receive God's spirit in the first place, but then you've got to exhibit faithfulness. So it's a little circuitous. This faithfulness is about fidelity and staying in a place where we can be pleasing to God. The kind of faith that is accessible through God's spirit is different than having other kinds of faith. Okay, so we've got, there's a lot of moving parts. We, we're using some words, and it's like, wait, this word versus that word, and we're meaning the same thing. Und, let's understand faithfulness here. To have faith is to have a clear and convicted state of mind. One can have faith in erroneous beliefs and teachings and end up in a very deceived state of being. Our faith must have its basis in a true comprehension of God, His plan, and Jesus. Very strong faith brings very deep conviction, and that puts one in a position to be able to act with courage. Rick and Julie, a good example would be Saul of Tarsus. He had great conviction when trying to serve God through his belief in the law, but his courage was misplaced by persecuting the Christians. So he had great faith, but in wrong things. So therefore, our faith has to be based on the God of heaven, first and foremost. His track record is infallible. So for example, we will read Hebrews eleven six to 7. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So the first phrase in those verses in Hebrews eleven six: without faith it's impossible to please him. You've got to pause and understand that our faithfulness is a prerequisite to be a true Christian. You cannot be a true Christian without faith. And then the, and then the apostle uses Noah as an example. By faith, Noah builds the ark. We talked about that in some of the previous uh, episodes here. He, he, he spends years and years and years and years, decades and decades and decades and decades, building this boat on dry land. And he's the mockery of society. By faith, he did what God told him to. So when it says, by faith, it's Im- without faith, it's impossible to please him, that's the kind of faith that we want to look at and say, wow, we want to have that developing in us through God's Spirit. Our faith has to be activated by the example of Jesus, who defined the Christian's journey, and we look at Hebrews 12, too. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, what this is saying is, Jesus is the clarity with which every created intelligent being can follow spiritually and earthly. And for God's spirit to produce faithfulness within us, we have to be in tune with what God through Jesus has done and what he is doing. It all starts with that selfless love of God we talked about earlier, that agape love. And it, it and with Jesus, same love that he had for us. And it ends with our application of that selfless love in our lives. And notice, Jonathan, you read he was able to endure the cross. Why? Because of the joy set before him. His joy was more comprehensive than that one terrible moment in time. It was part of his his inner core, as I like to say. It's his inner being. It was unshakable by the outward circumstances he faced. Faith is how we apply what we've been given. 
Our faith must be based on the same foundation as the faith of the original disciples of Jesus. Jude 1, 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. We have to have faith in what the disciples believe, not in what our church says, if it's steeped in traditions and ceremonies, or on the other end of the spectrum, promotes a modernization of faith. It's ironic when you read the faith was once handed down to the saints. So how can we know what the faith is when Christian denominations, there's like 31,000 plus denominations of Christianity? I know. That's, that's even hard to, to fathom. So where do you start? Where do you know? Right. What is the faith once handed down to the saints? Well, there's a very obvious basis for the answer. The faith once handed down to the saints was based on one thing, and that is the Holy Scriptures as a whole. So the first thing we have to do is throw away any tradition. If you want to figure out the faith, you go back to God's holy word and you build the structure of doctrine, the structure of character, the structure of operation only by what the word says. That's the only way you find the faith. And it's so easy to add, subtract, multiply, and divide that faith. So we want to be very, very clear that it comes specifically and solely from the Word of God and is understood through the Spirit of God, thus the fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness. That original faith stands upon the redemption of Jesus and the integrity of God. Let's look at Hebrews 10, 22 and 24. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So what we have is this sense of a full assurance of faith. We're, we're, we're building through Scripture, we're building the essence of what faith is. Have this full assurance of faith. Be, why? Because we've been sprinkled clean. We've been redeemed. He who promised is faithful. Now think about that. The point of the scripture is, we've been redeemed through Jesus, and he who promised God is faithful. This is where we learn faithfulness. We learn it from the Heavenly Father and apply it to our everyday lives. His faithfulness is our example for how we should live. I have a really good quote about faith from someone named Chris Jamie. They said, the common man prays, I want a cookie right now. And God responds, if you'd listen to what I'd say, tomorrow I'll bring you a hundred cookies. Okay, let me, let me just, let, let me just, good quote, good quote. Let me just alter it a little bit. You know, I want a cookie right now, and God says, well, if you listen to what I say, in my time, in my providence, when I see you're ready, then I'll give you the hundred cookies. So it's not like God is just going to give you gifts that are completely unmerited. It's all about our growth. And we look at faithfulness. Faithfulness is an exercise of growing in Christ through the begettal of God's Spirit. That's what has to be happening. That's what has to develop. This is a process. This is not a miracle. Now you say, you know, we're given faith. Yes, we are. But we have to have faith grow in us. And that's why God's Spirit 
provokes us because it helps us to put these things in perspective so we can have true faith based on true things. Our faith in God's faithfulness grants us the absolute assurance of His care in our daily experiences. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation or test has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you're able, but with the temptation or test will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And I read, God is faithful, but what does that mean? Is he faithful to what I want or to what (laughs) he wants for me? Right, there's a practical side to this. And this isn't an escape, as in you're going to have your trial removed, but it's a method of endurance so that you can go through that trial without having it crush you. God is faithful, so we can be faithful. He is faithful to not remove it, but to give us the strength to get through it. That's his faithfulness. And when we see it, we understand the bigness of what this is all about. This is about growing in Christ through God's Spirit. Faithfulness as a fruit of the Spirit is such an important aspect of everything that we do. Our faith is an action-producing faith as it is a fruit of God's own Spirit, and He is a God of action. James two fourteen through 18. What uses is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So, so Jonathan, let's pause there for a second, because you get this sense that our faith is not a rocking chair faith. It's not a Sunday go-to-church faith. It is a faith that makes us act because it is so vibrant, it causes us to observe and respond. That's what true faithfulness does. And when you put that with the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, it becomes a very, very powerful combination. Let's continue with verses 17 and 18. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I like, Rick, how you said the faith isn't a rocking chair faith. (laughs) Like you're just sitting there doing, you know, just rocking away, letting things happen. Because the result of real faith in God and his plan for humanity is action. And there's a difference between compliance and checking a box of what we have to do. I have to go to church on Sunday. I've got to read 10 scriptures a day versus real action. And we scripturally analyze step by step how all that fits together. Episodes 1155 and 1156 called is it faith or works that gets us to heaven? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and it's so important to just grasp the idea that our faith has to provoke us. And if it's not provoking us to be different, to do different, to see differently, then we have to ask ourselves, what's that faith based on? Where, where is it coming from or where isn't it coming from? Folks, this is serious. This is serious because we're talking about the fruit of God's Spirit. God's Spirit is only in true Christians. This kind of faith, I think, Rick opinion, I think it's rare. I think it's very rare, and it's unfortunate that it's rare, but we need to, if we're provoked to live in it, we have to live in it 
according to the will and the word of God. Our faith gives us the ability to stand against enemies far more powerful than we are. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So let's pause there, Jonathan, for a second. The idea of casting your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That is a, an important exercise that sometimes, depending on our, 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 our wiring, our, our human nature and our character, sometimes we have to do that 500 times a day. But it's okay that you have to do it 500 times a day as long as you keep doing it, as long as you keep trying to put it there because we are weak. But see, faith doesn't make us strong, but it gives us the direction to grow spiritually, and that helps us to be strong in the long run and importantly, more importantly, in God's eyes. Let's continue with the next verses. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And this is powerful because it takes faith to act beyond your fear. There's one more aspect to this faith that I really like. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon definition includes fidelity, faithfulness, the character of one who can be relied on. Reliability is revered, and it's so disappointing when it's missing. Part of being Christ-like is that people can depend on us. We're going to do what we say we will do. And as a reflection of Jesus, we will act in a predictably Christ-like manner. I found a great quote by Zig Ziglar. He was a famous American author and motivational speaker. His quote was this, ability is important in our quest for success, but dependability is critical. You can't be dependable as a Christian without faithfulness to the principles of Christ. And those are the principles that God's character through his spirit are supposed to be exemplified in our everyday life, not just when we're at church or when we're with the nice people, but in our everyday life. So when we look at faithfulness as a fruit of the Spirit, are we rising to a spiritual life or are we falling into human depravity? As a fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness is a powerful result of selfless love and is related to all the other fruits as well. Joy and peace make room for faith to grow. Developing patience, kindness, and goodness provide many practical ways for faith to be applied. True Christian faith is not a stagnant thought or emotion. It is an active and dynamic moving force in our lives. Our faith must produce godly works. A dynamic and moving force in our lives. Is my Christian faith described in that way? Even though we're always talking about faith, Seeing it as a fruit of God's own influence deepens our appreciation of it. With faithfulness in order, we can now progress on the eighth fruit, gentleness. Is gentleness just being nice? Oh, you know better than that. <laughs> the, few, the further we go with all of these fruit of the Spirit, the more we realize that each one carries a special meaning and impact for the life of any true Christian. Gentleness is no exception. The first thing to know about gentleness is that it follows faithfulness for a specific reason. 
The more we're filled with an active, dynamic faith, the easier it will be to let go of our own agendas and adopt God's spiritual agenda in their place. And let me give you a hint, this idea of gentleness is going to fit right into that very, very nicely. So let's focus on the fruit. We, we're talking about gentleness. It's a direct result of selfless love as a basis for all of life's endeavors. Now, depending on the manuscript the translation was taken from, you've got two different Greek words here. Sometimes they translate into English as gentleness, sometimes as meekness. One means mildness, meekness. The other means mildness, mind, sorry, mildness, and by implication, humility. So that's an interesting aspect. This gentleness or mildness gives us a sense of being even or level in character. It seems to carry the thought of not being one to cause unnecessary commotion. If someone is described as being even, it means they are not easily rattled or taken by surprise. They are steady. It would not lash out, no matter their surroundings. I see gentleness as power restrained. You aren't gentle because you're weak. You're gentle because you've mastered the ability to pull back when appropriate. And that's a key factor, the ability to pull back when appropriate. To really understand what this word for gentleness means, it's actually helpful to know what it does not mean. And in some ways, the English language is less precise than biblical Greek. A few episodes back, we talked about how there's eight different descriptive words for our one English word, love. And it sounds like there's a lot of subtleties with the word meekness in the Greek here. There, there are. The, the following scripture uses our word for gentleness or meekness, along with other words that can be easily assumed to all have the same meanings. So we have to be careful and understand what it is that we're reading. This is a, a scripture that we want to use as an example. Jonathan, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Well, then we'll pause, and then we'll go to verses 3 to 5. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness or evenness. You know, this is our word that we've been talking about. And then it says... And gentleness, another word meaning suitableness or equity. And then I'll continue with the verse of Christ, I who am meek. Now that word meek is another word which means humiliated or lowly. When face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. So, Rick, what is Paul saying with these different words? Yeah, you know, and they all sound similar, meekness and, and, and gentleness and meek. And we're saying, well... It's all the same, but it's all not the same. What he's saying is, and, and so we're going to give a, a paraphrase. I, the Apostle Paul, urge you by the mildness, by the evenness and equity of Jesus Christ himself. I'm urging you by those two things of Jesus. I who am lowly before you. That's what he's saying. So what he's really saying is Jesus is mild. Jesus is even in character. He does not cause any undue commotion. And he's equitable. He's able to see things fairly. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you can see that gentleness, that evenness. You can see that equitability in everything he said and did. It's a tremendous example to see the, the life of Christ as a way to understand what this gentleness or meekness actually means. So it's important to note that this mildness is not wimpy or cowardly. The Apostle Paul makes it very, very clear because as we read on in verses 3 to 5, he describes some things that are very much the opposite. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You said the weapons of our warfare are not flesh. There's nothing wimpy about war. <laughs> You've got to be strong for that. So for God's spirit to produce gentleness within us, it means it's producing an even, unobstructed character. By unobstructive, I mean not looking to cause trouble, but instead looking to fulfill the Father's will. And such a character like that is going to be able to be widely used in God's service. So that's the key. Do you want to have a character that can be widely used in the service of God? And if you do, this gentleness, this unobstructive character, this evenness of character is a necessary trait. So if I tend to fly off the handle easily, what I'm saying is I tend to not be able to be used by God easily. Let's think about it. Let's think about it in terms of, is this something, am I my own worst enemy in being a tool of God's plan developing? Got to think about that. That's why this gentleness is a fruit of God's spirit in us, because it doesn't come from us. It comes from him and is to work in us. Our evenness of character can open the door for some who have gone astray to receive the benefit of God's evenness of character. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, that's our word, remember that's that evenness of character, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You think about the power of what's said in this verse. The, the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, those who are in positions of responsibility within the church should be, when you're teaching and dealing with those um, who are in the wrong, you deal with them with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Why is it with gentleness? Because you're not being overbearing, you're not being gruff, you're giving them an opportunity to see the error of their ways. That's how Jesus did it. When you think about when the Pharisees would attack him, did he ever attack back? No. He answered with truth and with compassion, and with dignity, and with the integrity of God's Word behind everything that he said. We should treat one another with that gentleness, especially when someone's wrong. You don't beat them down. That's what, not what it's saying. It's saying that you show them. You give them somebody to trust in. That's what Jesus did. That's what we're supposed to do. Our evenness of character provides a space for godly wisdom to settle in and flourish. James three thirteen through 17 who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness or evenness of wisdom. That gentleness of wisdom, its power isn't in its presentation, it's in the application. And that reminds me of Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Back to James 3, verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, 
meaning appropriate, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. So when you put all of this together, what do we have? We have a sense of the idea that gentleness, the gentleness of God's wisdom, is a big, big, big part of what we're supposed to be developing. You can't have God's wisdom without this gentleness that comes through the Spirit. And when we're so filled up with our own wisdom, if you think about it, there's no room for God's wisdom because God's wisdom is going to be at home in the Christian whose behavior and demeanor reflects God's ways. And we can picture it that if we aren't humble enough, God's wisdom gets crowded out. So make room. Our evenness of character is crucial if we are going to help those who are struggling with sin. Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or evenness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Well, we become spiritual by having God's spirit working in us. And in verse three, it says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So this whole idea of this gentleness is to put things in perspective so God's Spirit and His will can shine through us. You know, it's interesting because water is a symbol of truth. Think about this. Water can flow over an even surface. If you've got a very smooth and even surface, it can flow easily, it can flow fast, and it can flow with strength and, and create a current. It can create momentum. It can create a direction. If our character has that smoothness, that gentleness, it allows God's word to flow freely. If our character is full of bumps and and, and, and our own ways and our gruffness and all of that, that water is not going to flow freely. We're going to take its power away. Water, when it's directed, is incredibly powerful. Truth, when it's directed through a gentle character, has the same kind of power. Our evenness of character will cause those who oppose Christ to, in God's time, be put to shame. 1 Peter three fifteen and 16. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness or evenness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, Rick, you know, you know who I thought of uh, that possessed this quality of gentleness? Your Uncle Steve. (laughs) Yeah, you know, my Uncle Steve. As a matter of fact, when I was a teenager, uh, that was something that that just shined out of him. And I gave him a nickname. Uh, And I don't know if it was it was my creation or my dad's or somebody, but for my entire life, I called him even Steven. You know, we keep talking about an even character. That's well, here, here's the thing. You know, he, he died, you know, you know, many, many, many years later. And, and you know, in his, I think, 69 or 70 years old. He, and, and I did his service. And in preparing to do his funeral service, I talked to many who knew him. I talked to his wife and his family and th- those of the brotherhood. Not one of those people that I talked to, not his immediate family or anyone, ever saw him not be gentle. And I was amazingly moved by that. I, I just, he had that sense that God will take care of it. I stand for what I believe is true and I'm not going to budge. He, he wasn't a wimp. He wouldn't budge, but he had this gentleness 
of character. It was such an inspiration. Even Stephen, my uncle. <laughs> Rick, you talked about how Jesus handled himself before the Pharisees, but we also have those great examples of how he acted in front of Pilate and Herod and others, and he had clarity, peace, unprovoked ability to respond or not say anything. So gentleness provoked by God's Spirit leaves things in God's hands, and this helps us when our first instinct is to seek revenge on someone who has wronged us even if we only play out that revenge in our own minds. And boy, I've done that, and I know that that's not right. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't provoke a good end. Uh, and, right. and so the key, the key is to have the gentleness that comes from God, not my own. For goodness sakes, get rid of mine because it's flawed, it's messed up, and it's not really that gentle. Let's, let's face it, okay? But the gentleness of God through His Spirit, let it flow through me. So the question is, in regard to gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit, am I rising to a spiritual life, or am I falling into human depravity? As a fruit of the Spirit, gentleness or evenness of character may look subtle, but it is in fact a characteristic that wields great power and influence. This evenness grows in strength in relation to the growth of our faith we must learn to always strive to not strive so that the power of God and his wisdom can shine through us. Okay, strive to not strive. <laughs> Let's work really hard to not be causing troubles. That's really what we're meaning here. Work hard on your evenness of character and have it come through God's spirit. Don't just decide, okay, I think I better settle down. That's nice. That's good. But it's not, this, what we're talking about is allowing God's Spirit to guide and direct our thoughts and our words and our actions. Let the Scriptures guide us instead of our own thoughts. It's such an important thing. Gentleness, evenness of character, is harder to attain and maintain than it might seem. No time like the present to start learning. Faithfulness and gentleness bring us to the end of this amazing fruit-bearing road. What is the last step? The Apostle Paul finishes this list of the fruit of the Spirit with a very comprehensive and well-recognized fruit. It is the fruit of self-control. When you think about it, beginning this powerful list with selfless love and ending it with self-control sends an undeniable message. Take yourself out of the picture so you can put yourself in order so you can reflect the character of God through Christ in you. You have to take yourself out and put yourself in order. Those are the bookends of the fruit of the Spirit so we can be reflective of God by using His Spirit to do so. Julie, where are we going from here? Let's focus on the fruit, self-control, a direct result of selfless love. That was that first fruit as a basis for all of life's endeavors. Now, some translations call this fruit temperance. And the word for temperance means self-control. And it comes from a root word meaning strong in a thing, masterful, that is figuratively or reflexively self-controlled. The beginning of self-control is the mastery of keeping yourself from four things, thinking, saying, doing, or dwelling on 
that which is harmful or non-productive. We want to remove these, but we can't stop there because we have to replace what's harmful or non-productive with something else. So that was the beginning, but the culmination or highest point of self-control is the mastery of replacing four things, thinking, saying, doing, or dwelling on that which is wholesome and helpful. So replacement's the key. We just can't get away from something. We've got to be moving towards something else. And this one, this self-control fruit, this seems to me is the most in contrast with the deeds of the flesh list that Paul gave us. If we have power over self, we're not going to act immorally or jealousy with outbursts of anger or drunkenness. Selfless love makes it easier to control yourself. This is an especially important characteristic to teach our children. Watch our CQ Kids video called What is Self-Control at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. And I've got one more quote for you. This one's from Benjamin Franklin. He said this, educate your children to self-control, to the habit of holding passion and prejudice and evil tendencies subject to an upright and reasoning will, and you've done much to abolish misery from their future and crimes from society. Even outside of Christianity, the world recognizes the value of having self-control. It is what helps to make a healthy society function. Self-control begins with focus. Here's a small but telling example of Jesus's life, John 4, 30 through 34. They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, his self-control. He knew what his mission was and everything funneled in behind that mission. Even the meal he ate or didn't eat, that's mastery. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we look at Jesus and we look at him as the, 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 the culmination of all of these things. And oftentimes in his ministry, people called him master. And you think about that, and you see the mastery that gave him the ability to live up to that name. And when you're a disciple of the master, what are you a disciple of? That, that individual who can express and show you by their very life what you're trying to learn, and self-control fits clearly into all of this. For God's Spirit to produce self-control in us, we have to apply ourselves to observing and learning what the things are that naturally control our lives. We think about this. We can't control ourselves unless we're honest about what controls us. And life is hard, and there's so much beyond our control. But a lot of what we go through we bring on ourselves from natural unintended consequences to our choices. Without self-control, we open ourselves up to all kinds of temptations, mistakes, and pathways that we shouldn't go down. So when we look at all of this, our self-control, we need to attain it. We need to, to make it work. How do we do that? Well, our self-control is broken down into pieces in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the first aspect of this self-control is we must intentionally focus on what's important. Now, before we go to the scripture, 1 Corinthians 9.24, before we go there, I want to speak just for a moment on intentionally focusing, because we can focus on things, but we're suggesting we intentionally focus. What do we mean? Let me give you an example. 
many times in life, I'm sitting at home and I'm sitting at my computer and I'm working on Christian questions. And my wife comes in with a question or a comment or something. And I'll usually say, "Hun, let me just finish this thought. And I finish typing the thought. Now, I can focus on listening to her while I'm facing the computer and looking at what I just did. Or I can intentionally focus on listening to her by turning my chair away from the computer and looking her right in the eye and said, what, what is it that you, you what, what was on your mind or what was your question or what was your comment or sorry to keep you. Intentionally focusing is to actually turn your attention and your focus clearly and fully to something. With that in mind, 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run at a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Throughout this series, we've been asking what we call mirror questions, questions you look yourself dead in the eye and ask yourself, here's the first mirror question. How clearly do I see the prize for which I say that I'm running? Am I running the race to be in the race or to actually win the race? Having your default be, well, at least I'm in the race, isn't mastery. No, no, that's not, that's not self-control to the degree that it needs to be. As a matter of fact, that brings us to our second aspect of self-control. We must understand the limitations needed to successfully run the race. To win, there have to be a lot of limitations on things that are not necessary. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control, meaning self-restraint, in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And here's our mirror question. Have I intentionally limited or eliminated spiritually non-productive thoughts, words, and practices? You know, there's only so much time in a day and only so many activities we can prioritize. And my Christian race is a serious commitment and must be the most important thing in my life. Everything else funnels in behind it. If we don't make everything follow the most important things, then the most important things aren't. Just keep that in mind. The mm -hmm. third aspect of self-control is to be all in and press on to the finish. It's important to intentionally focus. It's important to put the limitations in place, but it's as important to remain all in and press on to the finish. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26 and 27. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I look in the mirror and I ask that person, am I running to win and not just compete? Am I boxing or contending to hit the target and not just spar? Is my body serving my will in Christ? Ooh. Having self-control makes my will in line with God's will. Does my body serve my will or God's will? And what we have time for and what we make time for are two entirely different things. And this is where self-control and self-restraint become such an important aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. I think of Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight, and I love this scripture. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Because without self-control, think about it, our defenses are down and we leave opening for Satan's attacks. So why does self-control fail? 
I think it has to do with the replacement. We didn't replace it with joy, kindness, peace, and all these other fruit. And that's the key. Self-control is not just, okay, I'm not going to. Self-control is I'm not going to, and instead I will. That's self-control. And that's why it's the last of the fruit of the Spirit, because it gives you the panorama of looking back over the previous eight fruit and saying, this is how I express my self-control, through love. This is how I express my self-control, through joy, through peace, through patience, through kindness, through goodness, and on and on and on. Self-control is the culmination because it has to do with every single fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is not, it is not a standalone characteristic. It is a necessary cog in the machinery of spiritual growth. If it's not part of the machinery, the machine doesn't work. If the other pieces are in there, aren't in there, the machine doesn't work. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit must work along with the fruitage of our own personal growth. We often say being a Christian means come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Come up higher. I love that. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. We'll break it up into a few pieces here as as an expression of putting the self-control in place. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So the first piece that we have here are these precious and magnificent promises. You notice they're not just promises, they're not just words, they are precious and magnificent promises that by them you're given the gift of divine nature, having escaped the corruption, deeds of the flesh, the corruption of this world, that's there because of our desires. That's the basis for what's coming. Now let's go to verses 5 through 7. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. We have to put all of these in place, and we have the inspiration by being given God's promises. Remember the promise we read earlier, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested above that which you are able. We put all of these characteristics to work, self-control being right in the middle, and we can be honoring to God the Father. Think, I mean, think about a life that is honoring to God. I mean, to me, that is just one of the most amazing things that we can aspire to. Jonathan, let's go to verses uh, 8 and 9 of Second Peter chapter 1. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. You notice how that verse started, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing. This is not a one-and-done thing. This is learn it, develop it, keep it, and have it continue to grow. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is supposed to always be growing, always be developing, always be maturing. That's where we're going with this, and self-control is that end result of all of these other things. Self-control is also a necessary characteristic of those who shepherd the flock. Titus 1, 7-9 For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, 
not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. You know, that means uh, someone that argues or fights, not fond or sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout. And self-control, notice that self-control is the last in this list. Now listen to what comes next. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So without self-control, we lose our grip. We do. And, and when you look at this verse, it began with, for the overseer must be above reproach. And, and, you know, the apostle could have stopped there. And he said, okay, you know, figure that out. But he doesn't do that. He says, here's how to be above reproach. And he goes through all of these things that you're not supposed to be. And then he says to be sensible and just and devout and self-controlled. So that, so that you can hold fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching with the truth once delivered to the saints in the scriptures so that the that individual who's in, in charge can be uh, in a position of strength and guidance in a really clear, godly way. So, Jonathan, as we look at all of this, are we rising to a spiritual life or are we falling into human depravity when it comes to self-control? As a fruit of the Spirit, self-control rounds out what God's Spirit in us is capable of fulfilling. All of what has come before would be incomplete without self-control, keeping our transformation focused. Let's strive for the mastery of ourselves for the sole purpose of having God through Christ be the only true master of our lives. And isn't that the bottom line here? We want to have God through Christ be the only true master in our lives. To do that, you need the fruit of God's Spirit. And we just have to look at the headlines today to see how important self-control is when it comes to our overseers or those that are leading churches. We see how things are kind of falling when they don't have self-control and the secrets that come out. It's just such an important bookend to that agape love that we started with. I appreciate that. So it puts it all in perspective. So l let's, let's go back over these fruit of the Spirit, these magnificent nine, the, this fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of God's Spirit are... The first three, love, joy, and peace. These fruits were plainly displayed and taught by Jesus the night before his death. Selfless love is the foundation. Joy comes from embracing God's loving plan, and peace grows out of that joy. Next comes patience, kindness, goodness. Patience means forbearance, which is self-restraint. Kindness means moral excellence and integrity. And goodness means virtue. These are developed through God's Spirit based on our living with selfless love. And our final three fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To be faithful is to adhere in loyalty. To be gentle is to have evenness of character. And to be self-controlled is to have self-mastery. These are the results of God's power working in us and only develop in a character driven to live the selfless love that Jesus showed us. So folks, let's wrap this up. These are the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked about them. We talked about the deeds of the flesh. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. Will you serve God and His way through His Spirit? Or are you going to just go back to who you are because that's good enough? If you're following Jesus' footsteps, it's never good enough to be me. I must work 
through his spirit, through that fruit. Think about it. Folks, listen, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions at this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, do I have rapture anxiety? Do I have rapture anxiety? Talk to you about that next week. Next week.